This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Ruth Simmons discusses her book, Up Home, One Girl's Journey. She speaks about her journey from poverty to academia, serving as president of Smith College, Brown University, and Prairie View A&M University. She's interviewed by author Freeman Rabowski. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org slash donate. Ruth, as I was just saying to you, I spent the weekend in Graceland and Daly, and then in that fifth ward of Houston. And I keep thinking about one fundamental question that I was going to start with, and that is, how did you muster the energy, not just to think about the good, the bad, and the challenging with such depth and authenticity, but to have the energy to express it and to say to the world, here is, here is my life, my childhood. What did it take to do that? And what was your motivation? Well, I suppose the short answer, Freeman, um, is that um, I, it was the love of my students that motivated me. Uh, because I found that over the course of my career, uh, people tended to mythologize uh, my accomplishments. And so students continued to come to me and to say, Ruth, tell me how you did this. Um, because so often it seemed improbable to them uh, that a journey like mine could have taken place. And I, while I tried to reassure them that there was nothing so... Uh, different about my journey, I think I still never convinced them to uh, that this was the case. I was walking, I was driving up the road um, along Paradise Pond at Smith one day, and I encountered a student who was trying to get up the hill on crutches. Hmm. So I stopped the car immediately and said, get in, I'll take you wherever you need to go. And to my surprise and horror, she said, oh, no, President Simmons, if you could do what you've done under such difficult circumstances, I can certainly get up this hill on crutches. And I, that kept coming back to me, this notion that my students had, that something extraordinary had taken place. So what I wanted to do is to give them the true contours of a life uh, lived from moment to moment with some um, fortunate things and some unfortunate things, and how, uh, by dint of um, personal um, uh, interest and uh, determination, uh, one could come to shape a life uh, similar to mine. So I often say this book is for my students to explain to them fully who I am, and how I came to be who I am, so that they understand that their lives can be shaped in a similar fashion. Great answer. I'm going to go off script in a sense and ask this question. The, the, the book shows 
just how secure you are, again, to talk in great detail about what was wonderful about your childhood, the love, but the challenges. Could you have written this book with this level of depth 25, 30, 35, 40 years ago? What would you say? Oh, of course not. Um, well, first of all, Freeman, I have to uh, I have to say that for most of my uh, growing up and the early part of my career, I said nothing of my background. And so my colleagues, my professional colleagues, knew nothing about my origins. I think they thought that I was the product of a middle class uh, existence um, and uh, and that uh, there was nothing different about my background at all. It was not until, and the reason I they didn't know anything about it is um, I carried a lot of embarrassment for a long time about um, the poverty of my family, about the um, very difficult circumstances of my childhood, uh, about um, my parents, um, and and so on, and because of that shame, I suppose, and um, that um, the fact that I was encountering people who were very different, uh, given where I went to school and given the positions that I held. So I'm around very wealthy people. I'm around people who've never had much difficulty in their lives. And I, I, I'm not comfortable unloading on them the misery of my, of my childhood. Um, so it was not until I was uh, named president of Smith uh, and the New York Times wrote an article about my background that people came to know the circumstances of my early life. Um, and so so I just really didn't talk very much about it until then. But here's what I found out after that article came out. Right. I received letters from all over the country from people who were inspired, not by the fact that I had been elected president of Smith, but by the fact that I had come from the childhood I came from to become president of a major college. They were um, inspired by that. So I didn't start talking about the elements of my um, journey until after that moment when I realized finally that the most important thing about me may not be what I've achieved. It actually may be about where I've come from. I started to appreciate that after my Smith presidency. And, and that's from then on, I've wanted to talk more about how I grew up, more about my parents and what they gave to me and so on. Um, and so the book could not have been written before uh, I would say um, 1995 uh, or 2000. Sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting that here you are now, uh, someone known as one of the most admired college presidents of the past quarter of a century. And people have always been inquisitive about you. I remember someone uh, asking me if your parents were teachers, because typically that's the story of middle-class Black America, as you know. Yes. And I said, <laughs> It was a mother, a French teacher, and and the other person said, no, probably her parents were from the islands. Because El Paso, <laughs> uh, 
right? You know, so must have been that, and people didn't know. And so you're absolutely right. People make assumptions because you're polished and because you speak French and because you are with this PhD from Harvard in Romance Languages and studied Césaire. It's amazing. And yet you have this background. Let me go back for a minute. We're both children of the South. And we really, everybody in the South knows what we mean when we say somebody is down home. They're being down home. But Ruth, mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I've been thinking about the title of this book, Up Home. And you, you wrote at some point something about you, the fact that you, you own the land now that your grandparents owned, uh, that they had, and all of the symbolism of that, and why you return home, and you talked about that up home being a feeling, that somehow down home, you know you relish that feeling, but up home is a journey. To talk about up home, because, you know, if you Google it, there is no significance there in the Googling of it, even no. if you get my so you're giving us new language that some parts of the country may understand, others don't. Talk about Up Home and your, your title of the book. Well, it's, it's quite amazing um, to me in a way that um, in spite of the harsh conditions under which we lived in Grapeland, yes. um, we remained always attached to that place. Um, we were shaped by it, indelibly shaped by it. Um, and we always referred to it as the place that we were from. It happens that Grapeland is north of Houston, where we moved. And so when we were going back there to visit our relatives who were still there, uh, we would say we're going up home, which was north of, of Houston. So it's it's it really is directional in terms yeah. of saying where we're going. And yeah. by the way, most people in my uh, group um, and my relatives understand perfectly that when I say up home, they know that that's Grapeland because that's the way we all refer to Grapeland. Sure. But I love the I love the notion, uh, frankly, because if I may. Um, I'll talk a little bit about what I was trying to capture with that notion of up home. So there's so much in the black community um, that we um, treasure uh, during difficult moments. Uh, I write about my mother's death, the hardest part of the book by far to write. And when I talk about her death, um, I talk about her going up in a sense, up home. Um, when, uh, when we talked about anything in our community uh, there during those difficult days, we used uh, superlatives. So the name of our church was not New Hope. It was Greater New Hope. And so we load on all of these references to uh, a better time, a brighter day, uh, a higher level. And so to me, uh, that uh, was not only the way we refer to our hometown, up home, but was also an allusion to the way we got over as, um, as an oppressed people, always looking for the most positive um, aspect of life that we could find. Um, and so up home to me 
says, this is a place that I belong to. It's a place that gave something to me. I'm attached to it. And it also captures my hopefulness about that area in spite of the difficult times that we had there. Powerful, very powerful. I have to say that anybody who reads the book will connect to you and your experience with your mother because all of us who've lost our mothers know that our parents, particularly our mothers, when when good things happen and great achievements, we we all say it. I, mean, I wish my mama was here. And it, you know, it, it brings a tear to everybody's eye. And, and even when the others don't know why we're getting teary, uh, we know. And so you, we know. you, you the nerve for all of us, Ruth. You really did in a very special way. You even said about your mother that she remains a puzzle to you. Talk about that puzzle for a moment, would you? Yes. So I've been haunted all of my life by the fact that as a child, I did not comprehend the magnificence of this woman. Um, In fact, I was rather embarrassed by her. Um, She was modest. Uh, She was self-sacrificing. She took no interest in her appearance at all. Um, She um, never learned to drive. Uh, She was not independent as a woman. She was very subservient to my father. She was overly generous to everybody, uh, giving uh, freely uh, anything that she had to help someone. Um, and, um, and yet, here, here was a woman who reared 12 children um, to adulthood, 12. Um, I only had two children, and I could barely manage that. Um, and, and yet, here's a woman who did that, who worked in the fields, who did all the household work, who um, who inculcated us with values that she deemed important. She taught. She was my greatest teacher. She taught me everything about how to be a hu- how to be a human being. But of course, I didn't know that at the time. I was too young and perhaps too foolish to know what a gift she was in my in my life. And so um, she haunts my life in in a sense uh, because I'm always I'm always trying to be what she would have wanted me to be that's my Mm. ultimate test is Mm. is this something my mother would value is this something and so I always have to say to uh, parents you you don't understand what children are paying attention to. You don't understand what you mean to them and what you could come to be in their lives um, uh, because of what you do. And my mother was, uh, I'm sure, completely impervious to the fact that I could have the kind of life that I would have because what did she have? She had no money. She had no amenities at all. Uh, She had no education. Uh, she had no fine clothes. She had no enjoyment, really, of modern society at all. And she was not an independent person. 
So she couldn't have imagined what it would be like for, for me. And yet, and yet, by doing what she did every day, by being the person she was, I took from her everything that I know about how to be a human being. It's, it's incredible to me that as parents, we can do that unknowingly and so powerfully. So partly what I want to say to uh, people is be careful uh, with your children uh, because they are taking from you every day uh, what their life can be. You know, my, my, uh, my, my grandmother would say right now that your mama is smiling right now down on you <laughs> right now. Ruth, for sure. Very special. You write in the book that to be born in an environment in which one is legally designated subhuman is a defining experience and that dominates one's self-image and that blocks any will for ambitious goals. And you talk at great length about family and you just talked some about your mother. And then you talk about your very complicated father. And I must tell you that as a man, um, I, I looked at one of the reviews that talked about all that you teach women about mothers and just the strength of womanhood and what you learn from your mother, from Miss Ida May, from the teachers. But, but I learned so much uh, in thinking about fatherhood from your book, from your book, uh, and thinking about my own situation uh, and my dad, my wonderful dad. But I want you, if you would, because I thought you were so fair. You were so balanced in talking about a very difficult situation. Talk about your dad, would you? Well, I suppose, um, you know, some may see my father as uh, uh, a complicated man, but he was very much a product of of that era um, Mm -hmm. where black lives were so inconsequential uh, and where... Uh, the poverty um, that he experienced was inc- so incredibly harsh. He um, was um, uh, one of five sons born to a mother who um, remarried, and her new husband did not want the children of her first um, husband, who had died, around. And so uh, they put the children out and they had basically to forage for themselves as essentially homeless kids, these brothers. And so my father used to talk about how hungry he was at times as a child. And he tells this gruesome story of how he once uh, found uh, a, a possum Uh, in the stomach of a dead animal and he got that possum uh, and ate it as as a meal. Um, That's how grim uh, the poverty was and the want was. And yet, in the midst of this terrible situation where they had to rear themselves, essentially, uh, he and his brothers were the closest ever. Uh, They loved each other they sought each other's company as, as grownups. Um, they were close beyond any siblings I've ever seen because they bonded 
in this difficult circumstance. Yet, although he knew difficulty, that did not translate into his being a more caring and thoughtful uh, parent. Uh, and so uh, we saw him as a um, uh, basically um, a patriarch. Um, he demanded subservience of everybody in the family. Um, most of all, my mother. Um, he um, what had to be waited on, um, served um, all the time. Uh, and he directed us in terms of what we needed to do, uh, but often was not the hardest working person among us. And so my brothers in particular, my older brothers, I had seven brothers, were directed to do all kinds of uh, work that would have ordinarily fallen to him, uh, but he passed it on to them. And so he reigned over the household um, and sometimes reigned over the household with uh, with cruelty uh, to my mother. And that was very hard for us as children to take, obviously. Um, and so uh, I would say that, um, you know, he was in his own way devoted to my mother, but I never understood that while she lived because he treated her so shabbily. But once she died, it became apparent that he was making great efforts to keep her memory alive uh, and he, that he treasured every, everything that he had um, of hers. Uh, he preserved uh, and so forth. And he talked about her uh, endlessly. But of course, for us, for his children, uh, we needed more than that as children. And the hardest thing for me was to have her her death and then not to have any consolation for my father. Um, she died um, and life went on and we were expected to, as children, we were expected just to accept it and go on. I was in a very bad place for a long time after my mother died because I did not have anyone to help me uh, with um, to understand how to cope with that loss, um, and certainly not my father, who was not engaged. In addition to that, he was not, he had no sense of where um, the country was going or what the opportunities might be for his children um, eventually. And so he did not support our going to school at all. When I told him that I wanted to go to college and that I had a scholarship, to go to Dillard, I asked his permission to go to New Orleans, uh, to um, Dillard. His answer was curt. Um, yes, I could go as long as I did not expect one red cent from him. He was very serious about that because he gave me uh, next to nothing for the duration of my college experience. Um, and he meant that he would not help me in any way. He didn't see the value of it. He didn't see where it would lead. And of course, um, later on, as I became began to work as a professional, he came to understand the import of it later on. And I, I can say that he was quite proud of what I accomplished um, in my career. Um, but 
he didn't help at all. And this was consistent with, in a way, what he was like when I was growing up. He was very self-centered, very much um, uh, paying attention to his needs, but not to my mother's needs, not to his children's needs, not to anybody else's needs. It's, it's, it's even painful to hear you say that when I was reading it, Ruth. I just have to ask you, so how do you, how do you not, how did you not become bitter? I, I just have to ask that. You, you write it in, in such a, a way that you try to give him as much credit as you can, and you look at the larger context. Um, and what role did your sisters, your siblings play? Because you do talk about the support you got from them. How do you combine those two things when you think about the lack of support from you, from your father and the love among your siblings and some in particular, including one or two of those brothers? How did you make it through? Help me understand how we help our students sometimes when they find the same kinds of challenges. What helped you to make it through? Well, um, you know, uh- First of all, let me say that these these things are always more complicated than they appear. And yeah. I was my father's favorite child. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so people will be who knew who knew that will be surprised at how harshly I judge him because he did everything, um, you know, that um a person of his limited um, understanding could do um, to to um, uh, to show that I was his favorite child, and I was his favorite because I was the youngest. It's just like a baby, and so so I would get special um, things when he went to the store, and he would get me. He would protect me when my sisters were or uh, were angry with me, and and so on. Um, and so, so I, it felt very much like I was his, um, his favorite. And my sisters remind me of that all the time. Nevertheless, when one becomes an adult and you have the ability to, um, to really understand what was going on at the time, um, you begin to see things, uh, differently. Uh, I loved my father. Uh, and uh, and when uh, when he passed, I was as um, you know I grieved like everybody else because I finally, as an adult, understood his limitations uh, and how he came to be the person that he was. And while he fell short of what I would have preferred, uh, he was nevertheless uh, someone that I understood. Uh, I'd like to think that I understood him, and that's why I could reconcile myself with him uh, as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up in a household with uh, twelve, uh, you know, twelve children, including me, uh, being the youngest, um, you can imagine that it was raucous, um, and that um, we had all kinds of rivalries, uh, and we had all kinds of challenges um, among us. Uh, But in the end, my mother insisted always that we had to be um, close to each other. We had to support each other. And we must always, always be a family. Um, Among the many things that she let, she gave us, she gave us that. And so 
every one of us has been faithful to that. Every one of us. Um, and so they helped in innumerable ways, of course. By the time I got to, when I lost my mother especially, my siblings stepped in. Um, and uh, they would uh, they would feed us, the three youngest children. Uh, they would um, uh, support us when we had things to do in school. Uh, they would give us money when we needed it. Uh, they would drop everything to help us. And I tell the story in the book of when I graduated from from college, um, my father didn't bother to come to my uh, graduation, but my oldest siblings, two brothers and two sisters, drove all night to get there and drove right back to Houston. That was a long drive in those days. Yeah. Um, just to come to my uh, graduation in New Orleans. So we are still just that close today. Um, every day starts with conversations, um, a round robin of conversations among the siblings. Uh, and that starts at five o'clock in the morning and goes uh -huh. on uh, throughout the day. And we may talk to each other um, many times in the course of the day. Uh, we're that close. Uh, your mother, as I said before, she's smiling. There's no doubt in my mind. She is smiling. You know, you, you have always been an independent thinker, even as a little girl. Talk about your observations of experiences in church, because even the language that we use in the black church, most people don't understand what we, we're talking about when we say somebody gets happy, for example, and, and, and those experiences. <laughs> and, but if you would, talk a moment about how you viewed what you saw in the church as a child, even your, your observations. Well, first of all, we're living um, in Great Blend when we're living on a sharecropper's farm, there's no, there's no entertainment. Um, of course, there's no television, there's no radio, there's nothing. There are no books. Yes. Um, and so the only social outlet in a way that we had was going to church on Sundays and seeing the show, the show in yeah. church. <laughs> and I was fascinated by that because I, you know, outside of what I saw in my family, I, I, I was mystified by all of these wonderful people in church and the way they behaved. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there as a child observing that. And this, this is real entertainment for me because uh, there is the there is the service, of course, uh, and the the way the moaning and uh, the uh, emotional uh, uh, the emotional uh, aspects of the service, uh, where people are weeping and and they're getting happy and jumping up and and testifying and um, and 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 then. Um, also, the fact that um, they're very carefully and judiciously uh, walking across um, in the middle of the service because they have to do something, and yet they have nothing to do. They want people to see how they're dressed, their new shoes, their clothes, and so on. So this is this is unbelievable to me. I mean, th th imagine what kind of show that is to a to a kid that doesn't get to see movies or anything yeah. else. And yet you have these wonderful people. And then my mother, my mother was perspicacious to say the least. And yeah. she interpreted uh, people and judged people. 
And so I came to understand that there were certain people who mattered and certain people who mattered less. I came to understand that there were certain people who were uh, no account people. Okay, they're they're corrupt in some way, and 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 they were on her list as someone that we dared not associate with, and so there was all this hierarchy in the human family where some people mattered and some people mattered less, where some people were supremely good people and other people were supremely evil people. All of this I'm learning as as a child from observing what's taking place in church. But here's the thing that also was happening. Um, I was noticing the disjunction between the way that people behaved um, during the week and the way that they positioned themselves um, during um, the Sunday services. I could see the gap. And so, uh, and so uh, my father, who was trying to become a minister, uh, would be uh, welcomed in the pulpit, um, and he would be clutching a Bible, and he would be very um, submissive and uh, give the impression that he was humble, that he was, um, he was uh, very uh, pious. Uh, this was not the man that I saw at home, who was a tyrant. Okay, and so on. So, uh, so I mean, I always say that that my early days in church um, really helped me to begin to observe people um, and to look behind the veneer uh, to see what people were really like underneath. Um, but it was also tremendous fun, let's face it, um, having to observe <laughs> all of this. There's nothing more exciting than being in a Baptist church service or a sanctified church service. There's nothing better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just mentioned something about people mattering. Um, teachers, let's get to the stuff that you and I would consider really fun stuff. And that's about education. It amazes me that even though you didn't have books in your home, even though there were times when you knew hunger yourself, even though you got the chicken feet to eat as the baby, quite frankly. <laughs> you I had to bring that, that up. Okay. I had to bring it up because my wife, who grew up in rural Virginia, talked about chicken feet. And I, I didn't think anybody else would. And I have had one other person do it. You're the third person I've ever heard about chicken feet from. I'm thinking the sophisticated woman of, of French literature <laughs> talking about chicken feet. But with all of those experiences that you got to miss automate in school, in this school, and all of a sudden she somehow was able to let you know how much you mattered, that you mattered. And you, I want you to talk about your teachers, starting with Miss Ida May. And the one thing, as you talk, if you would, Ruth, when did you begin to love to read? Because that's where I see, as you know, so many of our children never learning to love to read. So please. Oh my, well, uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's hard, it's, I suppose, for some people who didn't experience their first classroom in the same way to understand 
the lightning bolt that struck me when I walked into Miss Ida Mae Henderson's class for the first time. So picture this. I'm a country bumpkin. I'm wearing homemade uh, clothes, um, probably from flower sacks. Um, I have um, plaques sticking out all over my head. Um, I, I have shoes that barely fit. I am an ugly thing walking into this classroom. Um, and um, my family, being a very large family of 12 children, was kind of known as, you know how people cast aspersions on people with a lot of children? Well, we were sort of regarded as, oh, gee, those, those double fields, you know, all those children. And so, um, and so we were not respected, to say the least, as a family. But here I am coming into the classroom for the first time as, as the youngest of these. Um, and yet this woman greets me as if I, I'm the queen of Sheba. And so, oh, come in, baby. Uh, yeah. How are you? Um, uh, here's your desk. I mean, a desk for me. I'd never had anything of my own at that point in a large family with essentially three rooms in the house. Um, and so here she says, here's a desk for you. Here, here are your books and, and your you know, writing utensils. Um, and then I start, to, I start to do work and she is amazed. She says, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, you're so smart. Um, it, I was not old enough to recognize that all of these were probably lies. <laughs> I took that in completely and thought, oh, my goodness. The first time that I remember in my life anyone treating me as if I actually mattered. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that I uh, could do something. And, well, of course, in response to that, what, what are you to do? You, you're going to pour your heart and soul into pleasing this person who is a teacher and responding to everything that she gives you to do. And so that's how my learning started at the, um, you know, at the hands of this magician, who, by the way, was that for every child, not, not just me. Um, yeah. And so... Uh, I, I often say to teachers, you're not allowed ever as a teacher to have a down day when you walk into a classroom because you don't know if that's the day that you're going to light a fire for a child in that classroom uh, because that's what she did for that's what she did for me. So I started uh, obviously at, in, while in Crapeland at that basic level. Then when I came to Houston, when I was seven years old and continued my education in school in Houston, then I had access to books. I had There were libraries here, and I could get books free. And so I just started reading, and then I had the notion that, okay, um, I can have all of these books, an unlimited number of books, really, and I can read the entire library. I thought I could read every book in the library nearby. And that was, I was on a quest to do exactly that because I was finding from reading 
that my world was opening up in a way that I, I could not have foreseen. Yes, I had the day-to-day reality around me in this very poor na- neighborhood of, uh, of Houston, but I also had these worlds that I was reading about that were extraordinary um, because the descriptions were fulsome, because I could come to imagine um, uh, places that I had never seen before. I could come to appreciate the world that I was living in was not the only world. Um, And that started in me a quest to know as much as I could about the rest of the world and to just keep reading and acquiring knowledge of these different uh, circumstances. I wasn't trying to become expert at anything. I was just trying to learn about life and the people who were so different from the people I knew. Um, And I also had the sense that, oh, come on. I mean, I knew that that, uh, we were living a lie in the South. I knew that. I knew that while everything said that I was not worth anything and that I couldn't aspire to be anything but a maid, I knew knew all of that um, was a lie. Um, And how did I know that? I I knew that because uh, the people that that, uh, people were representing as being worthless, I knew that they weren't that. From my own experience of them. Um, and so I was putting together a landscape, um, perhaps an imaginary landscape of a world where people were treated respected, mm-hmm. where they were treated more fairly, um, where they were differentiated um, uh, as individuals, um, and so forth. And that's what reading meant to me. It was creating that world for me that was so different from the world that I experienced walking down the street from my house to school where, you know, cars might pass by and call me nigger uh, and so forth. The, the, I was, I was creating a different world for myself. Um, but it, it turns out that this whole business of reading was also um, building my uh, intellectual capacity, um, building my uh uh, creativity um, and helping me to acquire these magical words that I fell in love with. And so um, by the time I'm in elementary school and going on into junior high school, I'm completely taken with language and how powerful it can be in opening up all these worlds, in expressing oneself uh, uh, and in, in protesting um, what people are doing and saying. And so I'm on now on a journey to acquire not just as many books, but as many words as I can. And, and, and th- there's our challenge, though, Ruth. I want you to, you know, it's so interesting. You, you talked throughout the book about having experiences of having to clean somebody else's house or that, which sounds so odd given your stature today. But, but I bring it up because my mother learned to read and she was 35, 40 years older than you, but because she was a child maid and in a house that had books and the woman gave her that chance to 
to read a book and to come and talk about the book. And it was, she said, the more she read, the better a reader she became. And the better a reader she became, the more she enjoyed the experience. But then her girlfriends, she couldn't, she couldn't get her girlfriends to read enough to become good enough at it. You somehow, without having parents who were with books in the house, somehow you got into that reading and read, read well enough that you got all those points. How? I'm, I'm still back there. You take it for granted, your brilliance or whatever it is, that you just got into that habit. Can you, can you pinpoint it in any way um, because how you got there? Because most of your friends were not doing that. I, I know you had a little niece, somebody you were in school with. Was it her name was maybe Irma? You, that, that was doing and well. Al- Alba, yes. Mm-hmm. Al- yes. Well, yeah, I, but most I, were not doing what you were doing, were they? You, yeah, how can you explain a certain connection that you that you make uh, as yeah. a, as a human being? Something that you encounter that has yeah. a deep impact on you. Uh, how how does that happen? Why does it happen? I, I don't know, but I will say that probably my loneliness had something to do with it. Remember, now I'm the youngest in my family. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I'm my father's favorite, but I'm not anybody else's favorite in my family. <laughs> and so what happens in these big families is that there are cliques. Yeah. And so you have certain uh certain siblings that kind of hang out together, that think alike yeah. and so forth. Um and right next to me in the family uh was a set of twins. Yeah. And so you know what it's like with twins. They yeah. they are together. Okay, on everything, yeah. um, and then next to them is is a boy, two boys, and and honestly, the the boys in my family paid no attention to us at all. Okay, uh-huh. none whatsoever, and don't even uh-huh. don't even approach them as if uh-huh. you want to talk to them or uh-huh. play with them because that that was heretical, absolutely not. And so, so the so you had the two boys, uh, then the twins, and so I'm alone at the bottom. And yes. therefore, um, since everybody in the family had friends in the family, we didn't have yeah. outside friends. <laughs> we only had friends in the family. And um, I was the last one, and there was no one left for me. Okay, right. so I had to occupy myself with something. And yeah. probably reading was, uh, was a good thing for me. And by the way, um, I grew up in a family that treasured physical toil okay um that came came from being sharecroppers and and working in fields where you know how much work you were doing was very valuable to the family and mind work was not valuable at all in fact it was to be discouraged so if you were found sitting around not doing anything or um thinking um you were an idler and not worth much so imagine when i came to fall in love with books the kind of pressure that i got which was there was something wrong with me so my older sibling siblings constantly um worried my mother about doing something about me because they were very concerned that um, I was not a normal child. They felt that um, that other children would be out playing 
um, and I was sitting inside reading books, and they thought that was aberrant. Um, and so for most of the time when I was growing up, I was thought of as a bookish child who would really never be able to get along in life because I didn't have any social skills and I didn't know how to reach out to people and and do all the things that others were busy doing. Um, and I seemed to enjoy um, this sedentary existence with books as my yeah. friends. Yeah. So yeah. I, it it was just it just was a fit for me and my personality, I suppose. Um, that um, that I found um, I found respite in um, in these in these books because of all the things that I was learning about in the books, which of course my sisters didn't understand because they were not readers, uh, mm-hmm. and um, and none no one really in my family except one of the twins was a reader and therefore they didn't understand the world of books at all. Mm-hmm. It, it is a fascinating story. And you are there in the fifth ward and you're at Phyllis Wheatley high school and you've got amazing teachers <laughs> at a time when the best of our race were teaching people were teaching in these schools. This was the only place they could go talk about that experience and what you got from those teachers and from the cultural experiences and the amazing extra things they did to support you when they saw how extraordinary you were. And what they did. Well, in those, yes. in those days, our schools uh, were absolutely um, a village, you know, the proverbial village that it takes. Yes. Um, it was that. Um, and then some, these are teachers who were the best of their generation uh, who just happened to be limited in their employment opportunities. Um, uh, and so they were consigned to uh, teaching in uh, black um, schools. They certainly couldn't teach in white schools. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were not, there were many professions that were not open to blacks yet. And so teaching was about the, the most prominent thing that you could do, although there were some who managed to become. Uh, doctors and so forth, but it, but it was a very prominent position. And so um, we benefited because these magnificent people were our teachers every day who cared about us um, and who helped us understand achievement um, and who showed um, young people who came from um, abject poverty uh, how to make a way um, through life by uh, learning uh, certain skills and so forth. Um, and and they would do everything they could uh, to um, give you more work than, um, than, you know, you thought you needed. Um, they were very demanding. They could be in those days uh, because parents were not so active in the schools. And so when they, when a teacher said, you must do X, well, you had to do it and you better not come home and say that you decided not to do something that a teacher told you to do because you would be executed for that transgression. Right. Uh, So teachers were very prominent in the community. They were um, greatly admired um, in black communities uh, in those days. Um, 
And they deserved it because here's the kind of thing that they did. I mean, I had, I had a teacher in middle school who took an interest in me and gave me a job uh, cleaning her house. Okay. Um, she obviously could see that I didn't have any um, means. Um, yeah. And so she um, basically took me into her family and, um, and allowed me to earn pocket money, basically. Uh, but at the same time, she would take me around the city and show me different things that she knew I would not be able to see uh, or experience otherwise. Then when I got to high school, um, I found teachers who um, had a vision uh, that I couldn't possibly have. And that is, they thought perhaps that things might change one day and that we might be able to do different kinds of jobs. We might be able to go to college. And they prepared us as if they believed that all of what we were living through would fade away. I don't know how they could imagine that world. Yeah. I just don't. But they did. And so my um, drama teacher, uh, Vernell Lilly, uh, told me, you've got to go to college. And you've got to go to college away from Texas because you would never survive in a newly integrated Texas university because you're, you, you run your mouth too much, you'd get into trouble, you'd never survive. So you've got to go to a black college where they will tolerate um, your um, uh, presumptuousness and so forth. Um, and so she insisted that I go to Dillard because that's where she had gone to college. And she convinced them to give me a scholarship. Um, and that's how I ended up going to, uh, to Dillard because of her. Uh, and then when I got ready to go off to college, my mother's gone. Uh, nobody can help me get ready to go off to college. Um, and so my teachers invited me over to their homes and um, under the guise that I was going to do a little cleaning. And instead, they invited me into my teacher's closet. And she told me to look in there and pick clothes that I wanted to take off to college. So the bag I packed to go off to college was full of my teacher's clothes that they had given me so that I would have something to wear when I got to college. Honestly, how do you, how do you duplicate something like that? Really? Such major statement and what we haven't gotten a chance to talk about all the cultural experiences they gave you beyond the classroom and, and taking you out in so many ways. I'm going to ask one final question. I could talk to you all day, Ruth, and this is a question to the, the, the consummate college president about her higher education experience. I want people to know that you've spent so much time talking about that foundation for the rest of your life, the childhood experiences and all others so that people could understand why you are who you are today. You make the statement at the beginning of the book and the end of the book that you are the person, you're not the person you were supposed to be, but rather you are the person you dreamed of becoming. And then you talk in great detail about the Dillard experience, going off to Wellesley, uh, and then and moving from theater to the major in, in languages, um, and then the wonderful experiences of graduate school before you even get to Harvard, but at the Danford Foundation. And what I would like you to talk about would be how you combine the study of French philosophers like Sartre and Proust 
to understand the tension you were experiencing between uh, the childhood experience you had and you're moving into a world of the highest levels of education, how you use your appreciation of languages and philosophy and literature to reconcile the different worlds as you close for us. Thank you, Freeman. Um, and thank you for your questions. Uh, really, um, I, I very much appreciate uh, you and your fantastic achievements. And I feel it's a great honor to have this conversation with you. Um, I I was lost um, when I started um, in college because I had a fundamental problem. I was this person of poverty and um, and uh, from the outer margins. And I was afraid to lose who I was um, by being educated. It's a typical um, problem that a first-generation student has, I suppose. So I'm going off to college, and yet I'm leaving a family uh, mired in blue-collar work and sometimes minimal living conditions. And my mind is going back and forth between the privilege that I have to be educated and to learn so much and my allegiance to this family who has been everything to me for all of my life. And I'm, I, I don't, I'm wrestling with how to reconcile the, the, those aspects of who I am. Do I dare um, become educated to a certain level where I may lose um, that other part of me? Um, what would I be left with if that were to occur. So I'm definitely looking for ways of trying to reconcile these worlds. Um, And um, first of all, when I encountered um, philosophers, um, they helped me to begin to move away from the kind of quotidian concerns that I had, okay, uh, to... um, dwelling in a realm where I could come to reason um, what um, I needed to uh, understand. Um, And so that helped me immensely in my young mind because um, philosophers, of course, um, are very, uh, well, of course, uh, the, the syllogisms and everything connected with logic helps you move gradually from thought to thought to reason to conclusion. And so I was using that to a fairly well. What if this happens? Then that, then that. What is the logical conclusion of that? And so when I got to the existentialists and they said, um, uh, frankly, that existence precedes essence and therefore look to your existence and what you do every day because that will guide you to what your life can be. And so uh, that happened to me when I was uh, early in my college career to think about what are the things that I can do concretely that will solve this problem for me Um, because I'm going to be the sum of the actions that I take. And will those actions reflect adequately who I am 
uh, as opposed to what somebody else's idea is of what I should be. And so I'm starting to cultivate an understanding of who I am, trying to bring in everything that I've experienced as a human being, and then deciding what life should be like for me as a consequence. And so where I settled on is that I should have a life of action. It should be a life that contributes something to the world. It should be a life that appreciates the many different uh, people um, in the world. Um, and should be a life that can appreciate my family for who they are and what they have been able to do in their lives and give to me. All of that could be brought together and unified under one vision of what it is to be a human being. I can be who I am um, with my background, and I can also um, be in the realm of the most elite and the most um, people who are most removed from me and experience and still feel whole as human beings. So so that's what, how, how it helped me to begin to evolve into a person who could represent fairly who I am and not be afraid all the time um, that, um, that I was uh, either wrong or there was something um, amiss in the way that I came into the world and the way that I um, uh, came through my childhood. Excellent. You know, we could go on and on and on, not just because we're both former presidents but and and children of the South, but because we are human beings who care about people, about education. I thank you, Ruth Simmons, for for inspiring us. I don't think there are many sharecroppers' daughters from the deep <laughs> South who are, uh, can be called a chevalier of the, the French Legion of Honor. What, what an amazing story you have. The book is extraordinary, as are you, up home. Thank you. Thank you so much. Felicitation. Merci. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about Books That Shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.